believe it or not, 78 to 76. We tried to lose. I mean, it was up by eight, and we won by two, so, you know, that's how it goes. But it was a fun event. It was a lively basketball event. Uh, I haven't been, I've been to several games this year, but this one was by far the most passionately engaged, if you will. Now, when you go to the basketball event and you watch a basketball game, the crowd definitely knows what's happening on the court better than the referees. You ever experienced this? That was out, or that was... It happened a lot last night. In fact, I would argue there was at least four calls at the end that they kind of blew for us, you know? And we're passionate about it. We want our team to win, but it's really funny how the crowd interprets the rules according to our own agenda, right? I mean, if you asked 5,000 people what just happened in that play, you'd get 5,000 opinions about what just happened in that play, right? It went off his foot, you know, whatever. All this stuff, this kind of thing. And so... I'm at this game, and we were like, we get to beat Alabama. Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. Everybody's passionate about it. And, of course, we see it the way we want to see it. This definitely was out of bounds, or this is definitely this person or whatever. We do that in our own lives, too, though. When we're desperately passionate about something, we tend to interpret the rules to meet our agenda. Ever experienced that? Especially when it comes to God's will or spiritual life, the Bible doesn't really say don't do this, right? Because I really want to do this. It's just like our passion for our team. We tend to interpret, when we're passionate about what we want and desire the most, we're passionate about interpreting God's rules to fit our agenda. It happens. If no other reason to assuage our own conscience, I'm not that bad a person. <laughs> I don't mess up that often, right? Or in this particular area, I really want to accomplish this. Therefore, the Bible must definitely not say that I can't. Because if you read this verse, and you read this verse, and you read this verse, and pull this one out of context over here, then I can do this. A lot like, did that, was that out of bounds on state, or was that out of bounds on Alabama? Well, if you're pulling for state, it was out on Alabama, right? We do the same thing with our spiritual life. And Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he is doing the same, doing something different, but in a similar sense. And he's restoring the original intent of God's law. Because what's happened is, over the hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years, the people of God have taken God's law given to Moses and added layers of interpretation onto the original rules. Are you with me? It's like it was Ten Commandments, but by the time I got to Jesus' day, there was like 700 and something that were rules to interpret the original ten. For example, don't work on the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath holy, right? They had a list of rules that included violating that, that standard for work on the Sabbath. Like you can't pick up your mat, that's work. Like, <laughs> like the, imagine, we work on Sabbath by comparison, you know what I mean? Like they had added all these layers of complexity to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy and changed it, and changed it, and added to it over time. And really what they were doing is they were drawing a fence around the rule, right? So don't work on the Sabbath. So we're going to draw the rule this far out so there's no way you can break it. You see what I mean? Like they would add layers of rules that weren't bad things. They were intended to help people keep the commandments, but they were like, if this is the boundary, we're going to draw the boundary over here so you can't possibly break this boundary. And so Jesus stands up on the Sermon on the Mount, 
and starts to preach. He gives kingdom values. We talked about that with the Beatitudes, that God cultivates this type of person in his kingdom citizens. This is the type of person you ought to be striving to become. Meek, kind, charitable. These types of things that are in the Beatitudes, that's who we're supposed to be. And then he goes into the law, and he bring, he's trying in this sermon to restore the law to its original intent, to what it was meant to be. You know, like the transfer portal was supposed to help students. That was the intent. <laughs> that kind of thing. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. We'll read those few verses and stop there, and then we'll keep going. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them teaches, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's some harsh teaching right there. Unless you keep every little stroke of the law, no hope for you to get into heaven. It almost sounds like the opposite of what I said last week, right? We're not going to be perfect, but we're supposed to try. And when we fail, God forgives us. And then Jesus goes, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying the rules don't apply anymore. Almost as if he's saying, it's probably already become common as he's, as he's traveling and preaching and teaching and kind of restoring the original intent of the law. The Pharisees and the scribes were saying, he's teaching people to disobey God and saying the rules no longer apply. And so in the sermon, he goes, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying the law no longer has relevance. In fact, anybody who doesn't keep them and teaches others not to keep them are in trouble. But those who keep them faithfully and teaches others to keep them faithfully will be great in heaven. So again, it's not about perfection. It is you cannot ignore the way God wants you to live. We don't get to go, yeah, I don't like that rule. I'm not going to follow that one. We don't get to make exceptions. We don't get to go, yeah, I know God says that this is wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. We don't get a pass. That's what I said last week. You can't do whatever you want, right, and call yourself a Christian. That's an error. I'm a Christian. I got my fire insurance. I'm going to live any way I want to live, and nothing else is going to change. That's wrong. And I've got to be absolutely perfect or I'm going to hell is also wrong. Right? So it's somewhere in between. It is I'm trying to be over here, but sometimes I screw up. And Jesus says, you are not supposed to just go, oh, you can do whatever you want. You have to try to keep these laws. Not only am I not going to remove them, but I am, there are serious consequences for those who don't follow them. So he's almost refuting maybe the charge or the allegation that he's saying the Scriptures no longer apply. Now, how many times have you heard people say, New Testament, Old Testament doesn't count, New Testament does, Right? You know, where Old Testament stuff is Old Testament stuff, that stuff's no longer true. Guess which Bible Jesus is teaching out of? New Testament hasn't been written yet. <laughs> He's talking about the Old Testament when He says this. He's talking about keeping the original commandments in a certain way to do it. And so what He does is He starts to give, immediately following that little passage we just read about how serious the law is, He starts to give examples. Examples. 
And the reason he gives these examples is to show the fulfilled original intent of those commandments. Because what we do is add our layers to make ourselves feel better. Or we twist the interpretation so we don't feel guilty. And the Pharisees had done the same thing. In fact, they had made it so hard for everybody to keep the commandments with their 700 rules that they could be judgmental and lorded over everybody else and go, we're spiritual, you're not. You failed that one. I mean, that was kind of how it was playing out. Allah, the, the Pharisees' prayer, thank God I'm not like that other tax collector sinner person. Right? That's a passage of Scripture where Jesus talks about that encounter where the Pharisee stands up in the temple and goes, thank you, I'm not like him. Anybody pray like that? Man, I'm so glad I'm not like Charlie. You know, you know what I mean? That's a weird prayer statement, but that's what he was saying. It's a judgmental attitude. I keep the law. The rich young ruler who walks up to Jesus, what should I do to get into heaven? Jesus says, keep these commandments. He goes, I've kept all those since I was little. I got that one. Jesus goes, okay, sell everything you have and follow me. Oh. <laughs> right? Oh, wait, I have to do that? Why do I have to? Because he loved money more than God. That violated the first two commandments, which Jesus didn't list in his original conversation. Right? So we think we're good. We think we keep them. And then we read Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or a sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the fire of hell. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against, against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go first to be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on your way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out unless you pay the last penny. Man, back then, if you got in trouble with finances and stuff, they'd throw you in jail and you, expected to, you were expected to pay it off by, while being stuck in jail. I'm not sure how that's supposed to work. Hey, I can't go to my job and earn an income, but I'm going to pay you back. In other words, you were there for a long time. Basically, until the charity of somebody else paid your debt for you so you could get out. You were no longer, you were then powerless to get out. But he's going, he says, anytime Jesus says, you have heard it said, he's referring to a commandment. He's referring to a teaching of the, of the spiritual leaders. This is how you keep the commandment. So he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. That's the commandment. That was the original commandment that they've added all these fun layers to. And he says, but I say to you, that if you hold anger or hatred in your heart for somebody else, you have violated this commandment too. Whoa, Jesus, why? That makes the standard a lot harder to keep, doesn't it? I mean, I haven't killed anybody. Anybody killed anybody? They want to confess right here on camera? You know what I mean? Like, nobody's killed anybody. We kept that commandment, right, Jesus? If you've hated someone, if you've talked, and it continues, he, he layers it, if you talk in an abusive manner to someone, or if you call them fool, then you're just as guilty. Ouch. <laughs> Anybody not been angry at somebody can still raise their hand? In other words, the standard is that much harder. Why? He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. And you will face judgment. 
But if you're angry with them, you will face the same judgment. If you're holding on to anger, you will face the same consequence. Man, I don't know about you, that's a much tougher commandment to keep. But what has he done? He's restored it to the original intent, number one. It's not just about, did you literally kill somebody? But are you seeking to destroy them with your words? Are you hating them in your heart? Are you abusing them verbally in such a way that you're tearing them down violates the same commandment? The intent was never about not killing somebody. The intent was what goes on in here. See, Jesus gives six examples in this particular Sermon on the Mount about how he has said, hey, this is the law, but now we're changing it, or now we're reinterpreting it the way it was originally intended to be interpreted, right? And we're storing it to its original intent by the Father in heaven. And we're going to do two today that are connected to each other, I think, and a couple more in the next couple of weeks. But this one is anger. Anybody ever had anger that you just carry around with you like a pet? Somebody did you wrong 10 years ago, and you still lay awake at night thinking about it. Or, or last week, and <laughs> still got you twisted. You know what I mean? And you can't stand them, especially if it's like a college roommate or something that won't keep the thermostat the right way. Whatever it is, like you carry this stuff around with you. Or if somebody really wronged you, I mean really wronged you, broke your heart, cheated on you, crushed you, stole from you, did something that probably deserves anger. Okay? Deserves it. And by the way, anger itself is an emotion. It's not sin. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't say in Ephesians 4, in your anger, don't sin. Which he, he says that, by the way. Ephesians 4, in your anger, don't sin. Okay, so I can be angry, but then how does anger and violate, violate you shall not murder? It violates you shall not murder when it becomes something you hold onto in your heart. Reacting out of anger because somebody wronged you is the way we're wired, man. That is part of the human experience. And it would be righteous anger when somebody hurts you or harms you to be angry back. But to define your life by it, to wrap your life around it, and to carry it around like a badge of honor is to break the, same, is to break the do not murder commandment. God never intended His kingdom citizens to hold on to anger as a drive and as a motivation for how to live. You go watch any movie in Hollywood, what are they all about? person gets wronged at the beginning, spends the entire movie making the comeback so they can get sweet revenge, right? I mean, that's, the, that's kind of the story arc. Right, a kid, <laughs> Rocky, you know, like, that's the arc, right? Thanos, you know, whatever. Like, is, is this, 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 we're going to get revenge. And sometimes we get great satisfaction when they finally get the revenge. You know what I mean? Like, yes, feels good. But when we're carrying it around, and Hollywood teaches us to think that way about anger, by the way, but when we're carrying it around and it's defining our heart and it's defining us, Jesus says what is in your heart is what comes out of you. And so when you're carrying anger and hatred in your heart, it defines your outward actions toward other people. And God did not intend his kingdom citizens to be that way. Are we supposed to do something about injustice? Of course. Are we supposed to carry grudges? No. In fact, forgiveness and confession are entirely connected to each other about how much you forgive others. God forgives you. Jesus says that. 
right? To the degree that you forgive other people, I will forgive you. So if you're walking around with this, how forgiven are you if you can't forgive them? Now, we could do a whole sermon series on forgiveness, and maybe we should, right? I won't camp out there this morning except to say this. To the degree that you're still holding on is the degree you're not being forgiven by God. And yes, that can be hard, especially if they really did wrong you. But that's why it takes this beatitude of meekness. That's why it takes this attitude of surrender toward God when you're trying to follow Him to let go of something that's really hard to let go of. Because it's the Christ-like thing to do, not because it's necessarily an easy thing to do. And so what happens is with anger is we build whole strategies in our life around that anger. This, this is my pet. This is what I keep with me. This is how I channel it into revenge strategy. This is how I channel it into a career or something else. Or this is how I channel it into how I treat everybody around me. I'm just going to snap everybody's head off when they come near me because it's in here and it's burning me up. And Jesus says, you've committed murder in your heart when you do that. You're liable to the same judgment when you do that. In fact, he even says, if you have a grievance, <laughs> this is how heavy the teaching is about this. Verse 23. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and first go be reconciled. He's basically saying if you're going to have an attitude of worship in church, you need to take an account of where your grudges are or where people who have grudges against you and solve it first. Why? Because he wants your heart free of the idol of anger so that you can worship him. Are you with me? He wants your heart in a place where it can be glorified God, not be focused on revenge. In fact, there's scriptures that even say God is, will take care of that stuff for us. The revenge part, God takes care of. Not, it's not up to you. But Jesus is saying, if you've got these problems, if somebody has a problem with you or if you have a problem with them, go and be reconciled first. Then come to church. So nobody will be here next Sunday. Right? <laughs> like, go and take care of that first so your heart is free. That's the first example. The second one, like it, is just as strong. You know, I mentioned the, the penalty about <clears throat> being stuck in prison until you pay it off. Hanging on to anger is the same trap. It's like imprisoning yourself and not being able to work to pay it off because you're stuck with anger. Verse 27, he starts in again. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. That's some light teaching for today. So he said anger. He's talked about anger. He's talked about hatred being a violation of murder. And he says, don't commit adultery. And so the rich young ruler was in Jesus and goes, I've never done that. But then he says, but... If you've had lust for someone, you have broken that commandment too. Whoa. Whoa. 
if you've had passion for somebody else and like the anger that you've held on to and dwelled over and thought about how you're going to be with them that belongs to someone else, then you've violated the commandment anyway. And what's really interesting about this is you really can interpret both of these two reinterpretations. We did the Ten Commandments series, right? Thou shalt not kill. Somebody's ringing bells for somebody. Don't commit adultery. Six and seven. Commandment six and seven. A little memory trick there. They're both really being reinterpreted through commandment ten. He's using one commandment to interpret another. You shall not covet. Great church word for wanting something that somebody else has that does not belong to you. That, by definition, is adultery, right? Hey, I want their spouse. That's adultery. Not just being with their spouse, according to Jesus in this passage, the desire, the lustful desire for their spouse is adultery. Seven, coveting your neighbor's wife. Ten, yikes. Wanting revenge so much that it's an idol. One and two. You see, like, if, that's why the scriptures tell you if you break one commandment, you've broken them all. There's some truth to that. To commit adultery, you probably have to lie. You definitely stole their spouse. You definitely wanted somebody else's spouse for yourself, covet. You get what I'm going at? You break one, you break multiple to get there. That's a light sermon today, Charlie. Thank you. Like, when we sit here and go, hey, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good Christian. I don't screw up. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Because lust, I would argue, is not just limited to this particular, in this particular case, much like anger is about harsh words, abusive language, calling somebody a fool, speaking poorly about them. There's some other layers to that. Lust is lust. A rabid desire for anything you don't have. In this context, it's definitely adultery in somebody else's spouse. But anything you are so passionate about getting that you are coveting so bad that you're willing to sacrifice the other rules to get it. That is not a kingdom citizen. And just like anger, we can carry those passions around like a fun little pet. I'm going to get that person one day. I'm going to split them up. I'm going to get them somehow. If I got to lie, if I got to cheat, if I got to steal, if I got to, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to seduce them. Something's going to happen. I've got to, and their life becomes bent around it, and it becomes a core of who they are, and it defines who they are instead of worship and love for God. You see, as Jesus is going back to the original intent of the law, it's not a, hey, if you keep this rule. Remember I said, you know, the basketball game, we want this to go a certain way, so we see it that way. The Pharisees would look at a rule in the Scriptures and literally keep the rule. I've never committed murder. See, I've kept that law since I was born, Jesus. Jesus goes, you've heard it said don't murder, but I say if you hate somebody, you broke it. So the Pharisees have to go, ugh. <laughs> right? Which is why he says at the end of the passage, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. What is he talking about? Both these two examples have to do with heart. 
of the law, not the letter of it. We could say, I've never done this, or I've never done this particular one. Or, I, I thought I was pretty good on murder, Charlie. I thought I'd kept that commandment. And to the letter of the law, you probably have not broken that commandment. But to the heart of that law and what's going on inside of you, you clearly probably have. And so he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees, who were just doing the literal law following, the rule following, keeping the rule, I hadn't killed anybody. Because here's what happens. If Christianity for you becomes a list of rules, if following Jesus becomes a list of rules that you keep, a to-do list, if you will, you can follow them and not love God at all. Now think about that for a minute. Let's just say the basic rules of Christianity were come to church, tithe, go to Sunday school. Could you do that and not even be a Christian? Of course. You could show up and sit here you could write a check. You could go to a Sunday school class and never talk to God ever. Not believe in God at all. If the faith is a list of rules that you are following, anybody can do that. In fact, that's why the Scriptures tell us that even the demons understand that Jesus was who He said He was, and they shudder. You think Satan doesn't know the Bible better than you? You ever thought about that? You don't think the enemy knows scriptures way better than we do? Clearly not a follower of Jesus, <laughs> right? To follow the letter of the law, I can artificially do that. I can pretend to be all, life is all good. It's the, how you doing? Fine, right? You see people in church on Sunday, how's, how's life? It's great. State won the basketball game, I'm good. And at home, your life's in an emotional, painful wreck. But you don't dare say that to another brother or sister because that, that would require you to be meek and vulnerable and for them to actually in, enter into your life and help you with it. We don't do that. But I can keep the rules outside. Everybody will think I'm a good Christian. On the inside, I am hurting and lost and not sure this thing is for real and not sure where to turn next. But I've kept all the rules, so Jesus must love me. It's not how it works. Jesus' whole purpose of bringing them back to understand this is to understand that keeping the commandments is about what goes on in here as much as it does in practice. To let go of anger, to let go of lust, to let go of hate, to let go of things of this world that cloud your, keep you from being with God is the essence of keeping the commandments. That's why Jesus comes along later and he says, what's the greatest commandment? There are two. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On those two things hang the whole law. Love for God and love for others. There's no rules in that. Is my life lived in a way that loves God? Is my life lived in a way that loves others? If it's true, I'm keeping the rest. Probably all 700. <laughs> right? If I'm charitable and kind toward others, if I'm gracious and forgiving toward others, and don't carry grudges, is that loving others? If I don't lust after somebody else's spouse, is that loving others? Absolutely. If I don't steal from somebody, is that showing love toward other people? Absolutely. If I worship God and God alone, if I give sacrificially, if I honor a Sabbath day of rest, if I do those first few commandments, am I demonstrating my love towards God? Absolutely. I only have to remember two. 
but they're all dri- love. They're both driven by love. And where does love come from? Not from a list of rules. Not from believing a certain denominational set of creeds. Not from carrying a list that you've checked off this week. I've had my quiet time. I've been to church. I've tied. I'm a good Christian. It comes from here. A kingdom citizen's heart is being transformed into being a kingdom citizen who loves God and loves others. The how is difficult and challenging. I'm not going to say it's not. But it starts with a heart transformation. Verse 29 is pretty radical, isn't it? If you have a trouble lusting after something, cut off, pull out your eye. If we take that literally, we're going to be a bunch of blind people at church next Sunday. Right? It's hyperbole. 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 <laughs> it's hyperbole, right? It's an exaggeration to prove a point. If it's about heart, then you have to rid your life of the things that captivate your heart in the wrong way. I shared a story last week about my friend David. And I said I had basically cut my relationship off with David because I couldn't resist temptation when I was with him. It had nothing to do with David. It had to do with my own personal strength and ability. Right? So I had to <laughs> cut off my hand, David, to be able to honor God. I had a friend of mine who entered into ministry about the same time I did, and we were going to training together, and we were having conversations about secular and Christian music, you know, and the use of it or whether you should listen to it or not and all those kind of debates and stuff like that. And he and I got, kind of got sideways with each other about it because I'm like, hey, if I play some stuff kids are familiar with, this is a youth pastor, play stuff kids are familiar with, they'll feel more comfortable being there, that kind of argument, you know. Thing. And he's like, nope, it's from Satan, can't have anything of it. Extended conversation, come to find out, that was a source of temptation for him to listen to that stuff. It reminded him too much of his past life. It, led, it changed his thoughts back, brought his thoughts back to the way he lived before he knew Christ. He had to pull it out for him. It wasn't an area of weakness for me. I was able to use it as a ministry tool, but he and I are in different spiritual paths. But it's what Jesus is talking about when he says, if your left eye causes you to stumble, rip it out. You've got to look at your life and go, what's captivating me that shouldn't? What sin or desire or passion, or anger, or am I holding on to that is keeping me from God? That's what Jesus is talking about. And he's saying, cut it off. Let it go. Rip it out. Go and settle your, your differences with your friend, or your neighbor, your brother, or your sister, so that you can worship God with your whole heart. This is the deep work of the spiritual life. It's not a list of things you can just keep. It is being honest with God. It's why we've been journaling through the Sermon on the Mount. Hopefully you're participating in that. What beatitude does God need to cultivate in me? What area of my life do I need to grow next, God? Kind of thing. Like what, That's deep spiritual work. And when you meet Christians who have done that work, you can tell. <laughs> right? When you meet a Christian who just goes through the motions and goes to church because mom and dad made them and it's just part of life and it's my checklist, so I feel spiritual and feel better about myself this week, you can meet those Christians and know who they are. But if you meet a Christian who's been completely candid with God and laid everything at his feet, you can tell them too. That's just me. Like you can tell when somebody's had the soul-bearing work done. And maybe you're sitting there going, which one am I? Good. <laughs> Right? Because the faith is not, it's, if it was easy, 
Then it'd be easy as don't murder. If being a Christian was easy and as simple as keeping a list of rules, you'd be like, okay, check, 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 check. I'm a good Christian. You can be dead inside and do that. That's why Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Look good on the outside, but you're dead bones and ash on the inside. Is that you? Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Here's what we're going to do. I asked you, hopefully you saw it or took advantage of it, I asked you to bring a rock with you into worship this morning. Maybe you've been playing with it through this entire sermon because you're bored. I don't know. But I asked you to bring a little rock with you into, into church this morning for a reason. I brought mine that's down here under my keys somewhere. I got one too. And no, there was no significance to the color or size, but if you got a nice red one, cool. Um, for the sake of this morning and our, and our worship time, this symbolizes whatever it is you are hanging on to that needs to go. Whether it be a grudge, whether it be a lustful desire for somebody else or something else that's keeping you from God, it's time to keep the law the way Jesus interpreted it and to put it behind us. So I'm going to invite the band to come up and play. We're going to take some time. Just music will for a little while. The altars are open if you need to come and pray, or you can pray where you're sitting. However, whatever's comfortable for you, there's actually worship stations in the back if you want some privacy to go pray. There's an art station back there if you need to go write God a letter. However you feel like expressing this is fine. And when your heart is ready to let go of whatever it is, you're going to place it in the lovely little bowl in the center of the altar. So if you need to come up and like kneel and pray for a while before you do that, that's fine. If you already know what it is and you're ready to let it go, you can come, you can shoot it from back there like a basketball. I don't, no, I'm exaggerating a little bit, obviously, but we're going to spend some time with God doing the deep work and ask ourselves the question, is there anything that needs to be removed? Is there anything that needs to be pulled away? Is there anything that I need to let go of so that I can be holy God's? And you're going to leave it this morning at the altar. And it can be small. Hey, I really was mean to my brother last week. You know, it can be a small thing, but it can be something big too. And I also recognize that anytime I do a sermon like this, it kind of stirs up the pot a little bit, so to speak. You know what I mean? Like, gosh, now he's got me thinking about stuff I really need to change. I'm, I don't know what to do. If that's you... If this rock is too hard to put down, and by the way, that is the spiritual reality sometimes too. As we get into this, we go like, I want to lay this anger down, but I just don't know how. That's a reality too. That's a reality of the faith. Sometimes sin is so hard to get rid of, we need the help of the spiritual community to help us get rid of it. If that's you, please reach out to me. And if I can't help you, I will get you connected with somebody who can, all right? Because that is the intent of the faith. We're not just like, we're not doing this on our own. It's not a personal checklist, and neither is releasing sin just a personal thing. God intended us to do this as a community of faith. And sometimes the sin is so stubborn because we've kept it around like a pet for so long. We need people to come alongside us to help us release it. An addiction is a case for that, right? A wound from abuse from somebody who wronged you in the past sometimes needs extra layers of healing to let go of. And I want you to hear me say, that is okay. Sometimes we don't have the power to do this by ourselves. In fact, honestly, 
None of us have the power to let any of this go by ourselves. It comes from the Holy Spirit at work in us. And sometimes he uses the people around us to work a change in us, is what I'm getting at. And so I encourage you, I plead with you, don't keep carrying your spiritual pets around. Embrace the life that Christ has invited us into with your whole heart. And the peace of God which passes all understanding will be yours in Christ Jesus. If you've been doing the journal with us, that is the journal this week, right? What do I need to let go of Jesus? Maybe you need time beyond this morning to think about that. You have that opportunity in these journals. If you did not get one, they're our gift to you on the way out, all right? Let me pray for you. The band's gonna guide us in some time for you to come and pray and to leave your rock at the altar. Let's pray. Gracious God, open the eyes of our heart in this moment. Allow us to rest in you. Speak into our hearts. Help us to do the heavy lifting. Help us, empower us to let go of the sin that binds us so that we can run the race you have given us to run. So that we can pursue you with our whole heart. In Christ's name, amen.